0: Two old men were shopping separately at Walmart when, um, unbeknownst to them, they were coming around a corner and they crashed into each other. And one very old man said to the other one, sorry about that, I'm looking for my wife. The other man said, I'm desperately looking for my wife. One of the very old men said to the other very old man, he said, well, what does your wife look like? And he said back to him, she's uh, 27 years old, she's blonde, uh, blue eyes, uh, legs that go on for days, she's wearing short shorts. What does your wife look like? And he says, uh, oh, she can wait. Let's find yours. <laughs> what are you going to be like when you get old? Or if you're old, what do you like? We're looking uh, at a letter written by Paul who was getting older. Uh, our best guess is the, the letter to the Second Corinthians, the church at Corinth, a very important a Roman city there. It was written probably in A.D. Uh, 55. And our best guess, as we studied it, is that Paul probably uh, came to his death, his life ended under the direction, he was executed under the direction of the Emperor Nero in probably the year AD 67. When Paul wrote this letter, he was pretty old. When he wrote this letter, he didn't know it, but he only had about 12 years to live. But he talked about the hard knocks life. Yesterday I was riding around and um, experiencing the presence of the Lord on a beautiful day as I listened to country music. And I was listening to a song by, I believe the artist is Dierks Bentley. And Dirt's new song is, I'm a riser. I'm a get up off the ground, don't run and hide her. When push comes to shove, I'm a fighter. When darkness comes to town, I'm a lighter. I'm a get out aliver, out of the fire survivor. Now, like most country music songs, he could use an English help there. But, But he speaks. That song is, I've tried to sing it. And looked at the lyrics this morning. It's a song about resiliency. Gloria Gaynor said it much better years ago. More simply, I will survive, right? But that's what Dirks Bentley is saying in this country song. I'm a riser. I get up. When when darkness comes, when there's a push comes to shove, uh, I, I fight. I don't run. I don't hide. I get up. And we're saying in this series called The Resilient Life that resiliency is being a riser. It's getting up. It's the ability to rebound, the capacity to rebuild, to see your life rebuilt. And the older you get, the more we can share stories of when life knocks us down. Second Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 8 and 9, we looked at this the, the first week. Remember what Paul said. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. A good teacher always teaches that way, right? Get your head out of the sand. You need to know the reality. No sugarcoating, no beating around the bush, no mincing our words, no no overselling. We don't want you to be uninformed. Brothers and sisters, he had some soul there. About the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. Remember what we're saying, we don't want anybody confused. This isn't Asia, like China and those nations. This is the Roman province of Asia in which Ephesus was the capital, which Paul spent uh, as much time as he did in Corinth. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but God who raises the dead back up a little bit. We can't understate this. We felt we had received the sentence of death. Paul said, man, I'm an old guy, but not only this old age, I'm telling you, I've lived a little, I've been through some stuff. The flogging in Philippi, the throng, the crowd that threatened our lives in Thessalonica, the running to the coast, the sequestering here in Corinth. I needed Priscilla and Aquila and Jason and Timothy and Titus and Silas and these people to help me. I needed the body of Christ. This movement of love, the Jesus movement is gathering steam and gaining momentum, but it's meeting resistance. I want to bounce back. I want to be a riser. I want to be able to, when I'm knocked down, I want to be able to get up in order to be resilient, in order to live a resilient life. Paul would say to us in this passage that Laura led us in, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 10, that in order to be resilient in this life, we need to really be able to think about the next life. And I don't know if you believe that, because let's be honest, just shake your hand if you agree with me when I say this. But there's a lot of religious people out there that can be really weird, Right. I mean, just a lot of, maybe you got one in the family, you know, mom and them, some of them not calling anybody out, you know, but just, there's some people, I mean, in my days, in my 49 days, could y'all believe I'm 49? Remarkable, huh? Uh, Anyway, in my 49 years, I know that I've met some folks who are weird and religious. And at times they seem so not connected to this world. And I've been with this and I prayed about them, prayed against them when I'm driving away or walking, it's like, Lord, that's not what, I don't want that. All right. I'm not trying to be mean, I'm just trying to be real, okay? You know anybody like that? And so when you hear a message like this, or you hear that initial thought of, in order to ha- be resilient in this life, we have to think more of the next life, it's not an invitation to be super weird and disconnected from this life. But Paul would say, it's the only way. Because you and I, you know what we do? We make too much of this world and not enough of the next world. The journey is not the destination. The destination is the destination. But don't forget to enjoy the journey. Be of good courage, right? Do you see that? I believe, be of good courage. We are of good courage. If you ask Paul, hey, so you have Jesus and everything's okay? What do you think Paul would say? Hey, Paul, you have Jesus, so everything's okay? I think Paul would say, no. Now I got Jesus. But he would say, brothers and sisters. I would not have you uninformed. Everything is not okay. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago when we began this series called The Resilient Life, we talked about the the idea of complaining and that complaining leads to questions. If we're not careful, questions lead to to conclusions. And some of us, at our very worst, we have conclusions of I'll never be happy again. Nothing good can come from this situation. There's no need to continue on. But in our complaining, when we get to those questions, We need to learn to groan. We read it just a minute ago. I'm I'm stunned at how often the word groaning is in Scripture. And it's this beautiful invitation to talk to God about the stuff that your Sunday school teacher or your pastor or mama and them told you back in the day that you, you ought to be polite and nice and you can't say that. You can't say that to God. But groaning is this idea of this is messed up. But Paul didn't let his groaning, listen very carefully, Paul didn't let his groaning groaning suck him down. He let his groaning pull him forward. Because, y'all, it's messed up, but it won't always be messed up. This situation is hard, but it won't always be this way. The resilient life. The journey's not the destination. The destination's the destination but don't forget to enjoy the journey. Let's pretend in the moments we have that Paul was here today. I envision this as I study and prepared this sermon. Uh, let's ask Paul today four questions. The first question, Paul, what do you anticipate? What do you anticipate? And Paul, if he was standing here, he would tell us referring to what he wrote to the church at Corinth in his second letter all those years ago. He would say, I'm anticipating, you ready? I'm anticipating an upgrade. An upgrade. He uses the word tent, two, two building structures here tent, if you call that a building structure, and a building. The tent is made by man, the building is being, is being made by God. When we were Well, early in our relationship, Susan and I went backpacking. The first night we spent in a tent on the trail. The second night in a tent in the state campground. The third night in a hotel. How many of you are tent people? How many of you are not tent people? How many of you are married and you're a tent person, but you're married to someone who's not a tent person? Hurts, doesn't it? Paul... We've learned this. Paul was a trailblazing missionary. Paul was the church planter of church planters, the theologian of theologians, the Bible expositor, the scholar. Before he was Paul, what have we learned or what have you been reminded of during this series? Paul was who? Saul. Saul of? You remember he was a conspirator to kill Christians. We meet him in Acts at the, the stoning of Stephen. Stephen. If you come today and you've done some really bad stuff, stuff that you can't even utter, that, you don't, that you're hiding, you're running from people and hiding from your past, can I, just, can I just tell you what you just heard? There was a conspirator to kill Christians. He was there complicit. He aided and abetted in the stoning of Stephen. And God takes Saul of Tarsus and on a dramatic road to Damascus says, I got something different for you here. Hmm. And Paul, by trade, this Saul of Tarsus, then and when he became Paul, he was what? He had a trade. What was a trade? Do you know? Say it out loud if you do, church. He was a tent maker. And I'm guessing if you're a tent manufacturer, you're probably a tent repairer. And this week, using my sanctified imagination, I pictured that I pictured people coming to Paul's tent shop. They had manufactured a tent, and, you know, most manufacturers, most of a Things that are manufactured run out about 90 days after the warranty expires, right? And they brought it back into, tent, into Paul's tent shop and said, hey, man, can you repair my tent? And Paul, because he loved Jesus, had a dramatic conversion. He was great with customer service, right? And so tents that were ripped and torn. He probably said, my pleasure, long before Chick-fil-A, right? <laughs> and Paul would look at these tents, ripped and torn. And I imagine that's what inspired him to write this. That we're like tents. We're fragile and portable and temporal and we will wear out. Do this for me if you would, church, everybody. No choice. Everybody's got to do it. First sign of a cult. Hold your hands out. Just hold your hands out. And look at your hands. Look at the palms and the the fingers. Don't look at me. Look at the palms and the the fingers and and turn your hands over. This gets kind of good now. Turn your hands over and look at the back of your hands. And I want you to say out loud, this is my tent. Say it will wear out. There's a lot of wrinkles right there. there. Mm-hmm. That I think that's the first sign I realized I was getting old. I had some, you know, I had the receding hairline. I had the crow's feet, but I remember one day looking down. I think it was in church. I remember looking down, and going, "Whoa, those are my grandma's hands right there, right?" <laughs> this is my tent. My tent will wear out. Paul is saying, though we trade this tent, we trade it for a building, not made by human hands, but a building made by God. This past summer, not 15, but the summer before 2014, I learned a lot about architecture. We have some uh, architects in our church, and we uh, developed a close relationship with a team of architects so we could renovate the worship center and some of our space as we laid home to this building being the permanent home of Fondren Church. And I can really appreciate it. A lot of you were here, right? You remember we had to go to the gym that summer and worship for seven weeks, and Fountain Construction told us, in seven weeks, we'll have this place ready for you. And we worried a little bit. They did, I didn't, I just prayed. But our staff worried and they were just unsettled. I had great peace knowing God was good and he would provide. And we moved right back in here right after seven weeks and it just made me appreciate builders. It made me appreciate men and women who said, here's, here's our objective, here's our deadline, here's what you need. Bam, we're gonna do this for you. And guess what? They come through. Don't you love that? I mean, there are some good builders and then maybe you've done a renovation project Or had somebody build you a house and didn't go exactly like you wanted it. Maybe you're angry and bitter toward them now. That's a whole other sermon. We'll preach that later. But there's a builder who's better than all other builders. And God is the one who's building. Hey, Paul, what do you anticipate? I anticipate an upgrade. This tent gets traded in for a building. Not made by human hands, but the builder is God. Yesterday in watching football, we won't talk about all the games, but I was watching some football and I noticed that at Florida State University, of which I'm not a fan, I'm just telling you a football fact, I noticed that a running back broke a record, a record of a young man that I remember named Warwick Dunn. Warwick Dunn was a Heisman Trophy winner in the early to mid-90s, played football at Florida State and later with Tampa Bay. Warwick Dunn, is was, here's a picture of him running for the Bucs. Pro bowler, Super Bowl guy. Warwick Dunn grew up in Baton Rouge. You'd think he'd go to LSU, right? But he went, some, for whatever reason, went away to school to Tallahassee, Florida, to Florida State University to become a, a cinnamon roll, a criminal, a whatever. And he played football there. And I remember hearing of his story, and some of you know this, right? Warwick Dunn grew up with a lot of siblings. And he was the oldest in his family, had to bear a lot of responsibility. He didn't know his dad and his mom. How did she make a living? How did she feed all these kids? You ready for this? She was a police officer for the city of Baton Rouge. And during a robbery, she was shot. Two days later, she died in the hospital. Work done was just a little lad. Had to endure this pain. Had to go through this, had to take on so much responsibility. If you're going through any level of pain right now and extra responsibilities added to you, you know what? You you can feel that, right? It's tough. When you hurt, what do you want? Less responsibility. Give me space. Bring me comfort. Come to my aid. And this young gentleman in a tough neighborhood of a growing city had to become a responsible parent, if you will. He went on to stardom, as I said, Heisman, Super Bowl, Pro Bowl, etc. Records along the way. And if you Google Warwick Dunn now, you'll see the Warwick Dunn Foundation. I think it's the first thing that pops up. And Warwick Dunn has this foundation, and he seeks all around the country. He seeks seek single parents with multiple kids who need new homes. And this foundation, they just completed their 145th major home building or repair for families in need. Here's my pain. Remember remember what 2 Corinthians 1 said, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort, comfort one another with the comfort you've been given. See, some of us are struggling just to recognize and deal with our pain. Some of us take our pain, the pain that we feel, and we inflict it upon others. But here Paul is saying the the resilient life is you can experience the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. You can can own your pain. You can feel your pain. You can deal with it. And you've got to groan in your pain. I give you a green light to groan, not to grumble. Remember, grumble is talking about God behind his back. Groaning is talking to God, to his face. And we are groaning. And the Spirit intercedes and groans for us when we can't even groan for ourselves. Romans chapter 8. The whole creation is in groaning. Okay, I don't know what your beliefs are about global warming or if you make that a political thing or a scientific thing or what, you know, what aisle, side of the aisle you sit on. But Paul is saying this creation, as beautiful as it is, it's lacking and it's groaning for the new heaven and the new earth. And Paul is saying the Father of mercy is the God of all comforts. Experience that pain and groan in it. But then as you really experience me for who I am, for who God is, you have an opportunity to what? To get back. Those 145 moms or dads with all those kids in tremendous need, if they could tell you today, and I watched some videos, it's, to say it's heartwarming is an understatement, but to hear them say, what an upgrade. What, what an upgrade. I was living in something, it was a tense. And now, look, because of the generosity of someone who has been through it, whose faith guides him, whose story is a part of him. Let me tell you my story. You say, Robert, I'm kind of rolling. I live in a palatial pad, a colossal crib. First of all, you don't talk like that. Secondly, no matter what you're living in now, it's gonna be better because it's built by God. Plus, we learned a minute ago, this is your tent and it is wearing out. But God has something different. From you. Ever read the book by Heaven by Randy Alcorn? He says that there are some things that won't be in heaven. You won't experience death, pain, tears, sorrow, suffering. There will be no funeral homes, no abortion clinics, no psychiatric wards, no drug rehab centers. There'll be no school shootings, terrorist threats, amber alerts, no racism, no bigotry, no muggings, no murder, no missing children. No worry, no anxiety, no depression, no suicide, no unemployment, no economic downturn, no Wall Street crashing, no bills, no boredom, no taxes, no weeds, no traffic congestion or snarl, no hip replacements, no knee replacements, no hearing aid, no unwanted emails, no Florida Georgia line or Luke Bryan. (laughs) There will be some things that won't be in heaven. To steal from, to plagiarize from the late John Lennon, imagine there is a heaven. It's easy if you try. Paul, what do you anticipate? I anticipate an upgrade. Second question that we could ask Paul, Paul, what about now? You may want to put the word the in front of now. What about the now? And in verse 5, we read, Laura read it for us. You read along with her. Paul talks to the church at Corinth about this guarantee. This, uh, some of your versions render it a deposit. The same word that he used to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, we've been sealed in him. We have redemption through the, the forgiveness of our sins through his blood. And we have a Holy Spirit who sealed us until the day of redemption, the real day of redemption. We have a Guarantee. Hey, Paul, what about the now? I mean, I don't want to be one of those men or those women who's uh, so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good. What about the now? And Paul is saying that we have a guarantee. Let's say you're garage selling and you get up early. I understand if you garage, how many of you garage sale? Just nod so I'll know some of you out there. You ever garage sale? I mean, you get up at what, 4 a.m.? Is that kind of the deal? And you go, and let's say that in a garage sale you find at 7 a.m., the sun's already out there's still some stuff left and you see this beautiful dresser. It's a dresser just like you want the dimensions you measured. It'll fit in your spot. You know how you're going to redo it, but it's just what you want. It's what you need. You want the dresser for $600. It's a good deal. And you tell them, you declare to the owner of the house and the garage and thus the dresser, hey, I'm coming back to get the dresser. That's mine. Hold hold that for me. And their response, you likely would be, because they don't know you, they would likely say, you know, I hope you get it. I will try to hold it for you. Do you hear that? Uh, I hope you'll get it. I will try to hold it for you. But there's what? There's no guarantee. But you go to your car and you remember, ah, oh, I have $250 in that little envelope because somebody gave me such. So you go, you take the envelope, you give it to them, and you say, Hey, I'm so serious about this. i I'm coming back to get it. $250, I'm coming back in two hours with $350. And they take out a magic marker and a little bitty sign. And they write what? Sold. There's a guarantee. Why is there a guarantee? Because you've made a deposit. And Paul is saying, I've got Jesus and everything in this life is not okay. But it will be one day. And God gives us a guarantee. He's made a deposit in the presence of his Holy Spirit. If you want to learn more about the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, I would encourage you to read a book by Francis Chan called The Forgotten God. The Holy Spirit is the the person of God who's promised by Jesus to be your comforter, to be your teacher, to be the convictor of sin, to live in you. Isn't it great to know some of you like to convict other people of their sin, but there's a Holy Spirit that lives in that person. So just back up a little bit, the critical spirit, the judgmentalism, right? Don't, Don't be the Holy Spirit. That doesn't work too well, but you and I, we have the Holy Spirit. Now, you may want to look at that frustrating person and say, hey, I'm praying for the Holy Spirit to convict you. That's what he does. And he seals us into the day of redemption, and he gives us this deposit, this guarantee. And what Paul says about the now, we are going to this place that's utterly, completely transformed. But now we are to get in the process of being transformed. The fruit of the Spirit. There's what? Eight listed in Galatians 5. Those ought to be true of your life. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Have those in greater measure in your life. To walk away from the things that are of the law and of the flesh and to be transformed. Paul, what are you anticipating? An upgrade. Well, what about the now? There's a deposit. There's a guarantee. There's a transformation. The third question that I would uh, ask Paul today would be, is it about a better place? Is it about that better place? If you look down, if you still have an open Bible to verse six, seven, and eight, you'll see Paul talking about the Lord, about being absent from him now, but one day being present with the Lord. What I love about the Bible, C.S. Lewis says that when we think of heaven, the Bible gives us explanation, but it calls for our imagination. And we need to think on it more, about what it will be like. And it's going to be a great place. But here Paul says, ultimately, it's about a person. It's about the one. 21 years ago, in my early dating of Susan Mamarian of Palos Verdes, California, I got on a plane from South Florida, from Miami, and flew to be with her, to get to know her a little bit better, to meet her family for the first time, her mom, her dad her two sisters, all the people that were hanging out at the house. And when I got there, I I fell in love with the place. I I still think about the place a lot. I remember that first trip, and I remember seeing Catalina Island and Malaga Cove and Portuguese Bend and Wayfair's Chapel and the lights of the city. I remember these things. I remember the dry, arid air and the smell of the eucalyptus tree. I love the place, but let me tell you, that trip was all about the person. Imagine if I'd have got there those 20-something years ago and she had to give me the cold shoulder. She wasn't all in love with this hunk of hunk of burning love. <laughs> Imagine the disaster that would have been to invest invested financially and the time and the emotion to have this hope. And Proverbs 13, 12 says, when hope is deferred, it makes the heart sick. Some of you are hurting now with a broken heart because you're wanting something, wanting something, wanting someone. And it's a, you're living in the not yet and it, it breaks your heart. But imagine on that trip, if I would have been given the cold shoulder, things had not moved forward, right? And I, as much as I loved the place, as much as I reveled in it, it was about a person. And that was what Paul was saying. The Bible tells us a lot, an awful lot about this place of heaven that we will be going. And your mind and ours and our literature and all, it's just replete and rife with misconceptions, misnomers, mischaracterizations of what heaven will really be like. But it's going to be a beautiful place. But ultimately it's about a person. When I worship, I told somebody just before, when I worship with Susan here or anywhere else, we were in Dallas last week at a conference at Bent Tree Church. And a few times, or a couple of times I got to sit next to her and worship and she's all into worship. And I've got, you know, ADD, you guys know that, severe version of ADD. So my mind goes, it drifts and goes places. And sometimes I'll nudge her to, to ask her about something during worship. She wants nothing to do with me. Even now, it's like she didn't realize I'm the senior pastor of this place. I'm your husband. I'll nudge her. I did this this morning. I want to ask her a question. She, it's like I don't exist. And she's worshiping the one, the one with nail scarred hands her savior, the one she longs to see. You see, there are people, and honestly, I can't wait to get there one day to see people. Mentors and men and women who have built into my life, who molded and shaped me, friends who've encouraged me, some who've already gone before me, some mentors. I've got a lot of mentors that are dead. They're, They're with the Lord now. I've read their books. They've impacted my life. I don't even know if I'd be here today without their intellect and their understanding and learning and insight that they've given me. And I can't wait to meet them and have conversations with them to be reunited with some people that I love and more to come. But Paul is saying, there is the one. And I can be resilient in this life because one day, one day I'm gonna see him. The fourth and final question. Doesn't an obsession with this afterlife make you ineffective in this life? That's a good question to ask Paul. And Paul says in verse 9 and 10 he says that we're going to answer to him one day. That we're all going to stand listen in church we're all going to stand at the judgment seat. And that word there that Greek word used here in this text it's the word bima. You got to get, it. Bema serious. You got to get serious about it. Not Bama, but Bema. And Bema is, I think we have a picture, by the way, if you've been to the Holy Land, to that part of the world, you know that there, there are places in Corinth. There's a, a, an ancient Corinth and a more modern version of Corinth. And there is just a, a section of that city that's wonderful. The archaeological preservations are great. I don't know if we have a picture of that. There we are. And this is a place where, looking back to Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 25, this is a word carefully selected by the Apostle Paul because when he was leading the Jesus movement, locking arms with others, When the gospel was growing amidst persecution and martyrdom, there were times, because they were preaching King Jesus and not the king of the Roman Empire, in Acts 18 and Acts 25, there's given an account of Paul standing before the Bema here in ancient Corinth. That exists today. That's a picture taken a few years ago. And this is where Paul stood. Before the Bema. But this is important for us to handle this Well, this is not the judgment of who's in and who's out. This is, this is referring to God's kids. This is the judgment for everyone in Christ. And Paul is saying, I, I'm living my life in such a way that one day, this one that I get to be with, I will ultimately answer to him. That I will be able to see his nail-scarred hands, the Savior who rescued me, who everybody said, man, your life, you've done too much wrong And this Savior who loves me, who not just saved me, but he's used me, I'm going to answer to him one day. A family, mom and dad, husband and wife, they're going away. They're planning a trip for the week, for a week long, this week for a week long. And they look at their 17-year-old son. And they say to their 17-year-old son, or they think, you know, he's about to graduate in a year. Let's trust him with a house. And they say, son, we're gone for a week. Check the mail, adjust the lights and the air, lock the doors, feed, love, water, shelter the pets. Don't let the dishes pile up. You know, mama likes a, a tidy house, so clean up around here. They go away and a week later they come back. The driveway's cluttered, the mailbox is overflowing, the dishes are in the sink, the 17 year old kid is on the sofa. Obviously been in a marathon of video games and the parents say, or he says to the parents, I thought you were coming back on Saturday to which they say it is Saturday. Now, how many of you trust me when I say there's going to be a conversation, right? Everybody agrees there's going to be a conversation, but listen, it's not a conversation to see if the 17 year old son is loved. It's not a conversation to see if he's in the family. It's a conversation that will probably go a little like this. We trusted you and we gave you some responsibilities. How'd you do? And Paul is saying to us, motivated by the grace and the goodness of the gospel, the one who saves us not on the basis of deeds that we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, he would tell Titus in Titus chapter three. That's the God who saved us. But there will be a judgment for his kids. And he will look to you and he will say, what did you do? I put you in one of the wealthiest, most remarkable, privileged civilizations in world history. Did you spend it all on yourself? I, I talked to you from beginning to end, I talked to you about a life of generosity where math with me would be different than math within the world. And you don't have to live on 100%, you can live on 90 or less and as you trust me and as you give it away. How did you do in that area? I gave you a couple of kids to to guide them, to to lead them and to balance tough and tender. And ultimately, you got to give them up because they have minds of their own and wills of their own. And they're going to go and they're going to make all their own decisions. But I gave them to you for 18 plus years to not just bring them in the world, but to guide them. You guide them where? To guide them to me. How'd you do? I gave you 77 years of life. You spent four and a half years in front of the television watching other people live their lives and you not living your own. I created this beautiful body called the church and I called you into it. I called you to be loyal to it and to love it and to pray for the leaders and allow those leaders to watch over your soul and to care for you and to live out these one another's. To confess your sins to one another, to honor one another, to outdo one another in showing love, to bear one another's burdens, to be hospitable to one another, to take people in, to confess your sins, to live out the one another's, how'd you do? And Paul is saying, I'm motivated by this. I'm motivated to know that one day I will stand before the beam And Paul knew all too well about the Bema's that represented an unjust judge and a corrupt system and political power run amok. His very own life was threatened by this. He survived the danger of it all. His life was at risk so many times, but God brought him out and brought him out and brought him out. But he said, one day we will stand before the Bema, the great Bema, and there will be the just judge. The one who is the rock, whose work is perfect for all his ways are justice. He's a God of truth and without iniquity, as Moses said in Psalm 32, 4. That's the judgment that we will stand before and there will be a conversation. And it really helps me to know that I ultimately will answer to somebody one day. That someone loves me deeply. It's a profound love like no other I've ever experienced. I'm a riser. I'm a get up off the ground. Not a runner and a hider. When push comes to shove, I'm a a fighter. When darkness comes to town, I'm a lighter. I'm a survivor, a get up out of the fire kind of guy. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 to 10. Let's don't end this sermon on a country music song. Let's read it together. Would you read along with me? We make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil.